Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, and the fate of the Indo-Pacific. I am Misha Oslin, a fellow at Hoover, joined by my partner in crime, John Yu, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, a Hoover fellow, and right now a coffee-sipping Berkeleyite. John, how are you? Uh, at least you didn't say I was smoking pot, too. Usually the two go hand in hand in my hometown here. <laughs> How are you? Where are you, in Maryland? We are locked down in uh, outside of D.C. Uh, we don't have the beautiful view that you do from your deck. In fact, all we have is a view of, well, we have a view of nothing, the Capitol Dome. That's about it. No, that's a kind of that's all you get to look at all day while you're locked in is a capital, the imposing Washington, D.C., massive government power keeping you shut in. Is that all you have? Exactly. Right. In fact, that that dome has grown over the past few weeks. It's amazing. It's bigger than it ever was before. <laughs> the shadow across the land. But, John, I think everyone's had enough of the coronavirus and the Wuhan flu. I think uh, let's, let's talk about other stuff because there actually is a world out there. So let's try to make this a as much as possible a coronavirus-free episode of the Pacific Century. And, in fact, there's some exciting news. Exciting news if you watch the Indo-Pacific, again, reminding us that when all this is over, we have a whole bunch of other problems to deal with. And the first one is the health of the dear leader Kim Jong-un. Reports have come in that he was near death, that he may have had emergency heart surgery. The truth is he hasn't been seen for a while, at least, uh, and missed a major celebration that you can tell us about. But what, what do you hear what do you think? Are we about in the midst of the corona crisis to hit another crisis in North Korea? That's a good question. And a lot of it, I think, is being stoked by speculation that something's wrong with Kim Jong-un because nobody has seen him for a while. He missed a celebration of great importance in North Korea, his grandfather's birth, his grandfather's the founder of the regime. Uh, there are rumors, I think, mostly coming from leaks from American intelligence agencies and some North Korean defectors that Kim Jong-un either suffered some kind of stroke or heart attack or he had some kind of heart surgery and the procedure went awry and he slipped into a coma. I don't think anyone knows for sure, although it is telling that since these rumors started circulating that we still haven't seen Kim Jong-un. In person. Now, I think personally, one of the best things to happen for North Korea and that region and the world would be if Kim Jong un were to get the coronavirus and be removed from power. Because I think the regime is actually much more fragile than people think. It really does focus around the Kim family. Uh, there are no obvious successors because Kim Jong un, like the authoritarian, dictator that he is, removed all the plausible alternatives to his rule. Uh, so you could easily see the regime starting to collapse because there's no one who could really take power if he were to be gone. Um, and I think that would be, uh, I mean, that might be the only good news that come out of the coronavirus period is, in fact, the coronavirus itself triggered the collapse of the North Korean regime. So I think the two interesting questions are, you know, one, is that right, that uh, there is no obvious successor? And you could see the regime either starting to fight within itself or just collapse, as we saw East Germany, or it could be a more violent 
disruptive collapse like we've seen in, in Libya? And then two, what should South Korea and the West do? I, I've talked to some people over the years, both in Korea and the United States, about uh, those plans for what would occur if there were to be a, a change of regime in North Korea. Most of them seem to assume that there would be some kind of immediate East German-like collapse and that South Korea and United States would just sort of come in unopposed militarily on a major humanitarian mission, really. And, but that might be wishful thinking. What do you think, Misha? Well, first, um, whether or not the rumors are true, this is not a guy who was a, a poster boy for good health. You know, clearly this was this this guy is um, enormous and uh, obviously lives the probably the same sybaritic lifestyle that his father uh, did with fine brandy and chocolates and uh, and and pate every night. So the idea but, that but he uh, does he does benefit from one of the world's oldest antiviral medicines, kimchi. Kimchi. Kimchi, kimchi is to ward off alive. any universe of diseases. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I don't think we should be surprised at all that he that he had, you know, you know, coronary occlusions or whatever. Um, I think it's interesting, obviously, from you, you mentioned where it's coming from inside the regime. The last thing the regime wants, of course, is any suggestion that he might be ill. Uh, and so either this is is true information that is somehow seeping out, which is they're, they want to do everything they can to um, uh, to keep it under wraps. Uh, or it's a disinformation campaign because you do have potential um, uh, different, that wouldn't call them centers of power, but disaffected elements inside uh, inside the, the ruling clique. And, and that's something where North Korea is such a black box, we still, we still don't know. I'm less sanguine, John, than you are with your bloodthirsty take on international politics, that a uh, that a that uh, the death of Kim Jong-un would be good. Now, I'm not saying that he, the, the, the irony is his survival isn't good either. There's no good options, but- well, That's always true um, of everything in North Korea. Yeah, I mean, it would be, it, it could Choosing be a- uh, bad and least bad. Well, that's it, right? It could be a blood, it could be a bloodbath between uh, different factions, including elements of his family. Uh, and uh, if there is a uh, w putatively a successor, it seems to be uh, his sister, um, who has taken up enormous, this is Kim Yo-jong, who's taken up um, enormously uh, public positions, uh, went to the Olympics, has been seen by his side, uh, apparently was in exile with him in Switzerland when they were in school, so was very close to him. Uh, she would clearly be fighting for the family legacy. Then you've got uh, leaders of the army, uh, you've got other diplomats that are at the top and other bureaucrats who are at the top of the food chain. Um, so it, it could turn out to be something very bloody, and why that's bad uh, because we just have no idea how it would spill over, uh, especially a country with nukes and whether those nukes would come into play with different factions uh, or army corps that start moving around. And the worst part of all of it is that if that started happening, John, the first country to make a move would be China, I believe. And they would move in from the north to secure the border, secure the regime, not because they love the Kims, but because they want that buffer state. And they would essentially make North Korea a protectorate. So uh, a collapse scenario would not be, uh, to me, would not be East Germany. Um, it would be sui generis, as usual, with, with North Korea, and it'd be, it would be North Korean. And I think the big winners would be 
uh, China and, unfortunately, an increasingly left-leaning South Korea, right? If we had a conservative government in South Korea right now, uh, I'd be a little bit more confident. But we have an extremely left-leaning government, and we're going to talk about this, that just won parliamentary elections, uh, that that tilts towards Beijing as well as towards Pyongyang. So I think that we would wind up with a, a, Korea, a Korean peninsula tilted away from the United States. Is an interesting question. What would happen, <clears throat> excuse me, if there were actually a, an outright collapse? Uh, because then there'd be no real order. And I think both China and, uh, you know, would come down from the north, as you say. They would want to secure the border to prevent a lot of North Korean refugees coming across. Uh, the answer, the question about whether uh, China would actually want to take on running North Korea is an interesting one. I mean, good luck to them <laughs> if, they, yeah. if they're just grabbing a whole trash barrel of problems. Uh, and I, I agree with you also that South Korea has a strong interest in unification. Uh, it really is the foreign policy of President Moon that makes him different than past conservative regimes. It sort of has distinguished uh, the two parties in South Korea is their attitude towards the North. Um, but you could also see uh, South Korean and U.S. forces coming across the border, too. Again, a humanitarian mission just to uh, prevent what would no doubt be wide-scale suffering and loss of life if the regime were to collapse in some way. You could see a concern that uh, U.S. and Chinese forces could come into some kind of unintentional conflict unless they're able to work something out now. I am pretty sure the U.S. and China have tried to discuss this. I'm, I also imagine that there's no real agreement or even strong understanding in place about what's supposed to happen if there's an implosion in the North. Yeah, those are uh, those are interesting uh, and actually crucial questions, John. And I, and I um, agree with you. I think it might actually be a little bit harder for the U.S. Uh, to just go into North Korea um, for a lot of reasons. First of all, you have all of the um, you, you have all of the frontline troops in North Korea, and we just don't know which way they're going to be positioned. Uh, they might throw down their arms, but they might not. Uh, you have all the artillery, and those uh, those can be separately controlled, so you might have a lashing out against South Korea. But the U.S. forces are actually, you know, they're positioned to be defensive and not offensive, so to speak. And so it's a question, an interesting question that neither you nor I can really answer about logistics and operational issues to say, well, we want to go northward because the goal has been to prevent the north from coming southward, uh, at least in the initial phases. And then you shift to something potentially that would be more offensive, but after you have a lot of air activity and the like. So whether we could actually even do that, that's why I think the ones that would act the quickest and the most the most um, uh, flexibly, so to speak, would be uh, would be the Chinese, and that that worries me. Uh, and um, they would also be much more ruthless. Uh, and so, you know, what you might have is a is a Soviet-style scenario from uh, Czechoslovakia or Poland or these other areas uh, or Hungary, you know, where where the the Soviets moved in and basically sealed it off, uh, while we would be sitting there, quite honestly. 
and quite troublingly, and here's where I think we should switch to talking about South Korea, where Seoul does not agree with us uh, and does not want to undertake the type of stabilization mission that we want because they're more interested in actually seeing uh, some type of, of dropping of the barrier between North and South Korea. Moon, Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, has talked about that a lot. Um, so let me ask you then, you, you saw the elections. Uh, what did you make of the, of the elections and where we are with South Korea? Well, now, again, I'm going to violate the Misha Oslin rule of not talking about the coronavirus during the show, because uh -oh, that... warning alert for those who can't <laughs> handle any more Corona talk. It's it's coming up. It's um, <clears throat> it's interesting. I think if this election had been held a year ago, the uh, ruling party of President Moon would be in a lot more trouble. You know, if you've seen the headlines. Uh, the ruling party, it's called the Korean Democratic Party, basically, won an incredible victory. You know, they won a supermajority in the National Assembly, which pretty much makes uh, their legislative efforts unstoppable. Um, the Conservative Party has not lost uh, by this bad a margin in generations. It's uh, really a. Well, why is that? Say, do you think? Well, what, the what, thing what is people it? might say, you know, this is. Uh, I don't. Th I don't think that it's a sign of the popularity of President Moon, who before the coronavirus epidemic had been uh, experiencing lower and level, lower and lower approval ratings. And I think what's going on is that Korea. Uh, did do very well in its coronavirus response. In fact, it's held up as a public health model for other countries to follow. I know a lot of American scientists and scholars are studying what South Korea did, how it succeeded. South Korea uh, was one of the earliest countries to experience the pandemic, but they've experienced levels of infection and death far, far lower, not just in absolute numbers, but as a proportion to the population than other industrialized countries like the United States and Western Europe. And I think that uh, Moon's administration got a lot of credit for that. Um, and so it boosted the legislature. Now, what that means in terms of policy, it's interesting. Um, I think it's a weird combination. It doesn't really align with American politics. It is in a weird way as if you had a liberal version of Donald Trump, if it's possible to imagine that. Well, I guess you could just look at Trump on CNN tapes from 10 years ago <laughs> when he was pro-choice and pro-gay marriage and so on. But this is a, a, a the, North, the South Korean regime under President Moon is a kind of interesting combination of liberalism and nationalism, where they, uh, plus some aspects of free marketism. So one of the, the what I would say nationalist is they have a, a lot of resentments towards Japan from World War II. Uh, they feel that Japan has not apologized, has not made up, compensated for the sins of World War II. At the same time, they do also, in a, this is a nationalist vein, kind of free themselves a little bit from American control and talk a lot about a, a restoration of this sort of open sunshine policy towards the North, which many Koreans also see as very nationalist, right? This talking about unification with North and South, that, uh, you know, we should get the foreign invaders and foreign occupiers off our backs and reunify this country, also very nationalist, combined with an effort to use state policy to break up big oligopolies, 
uh, in South Korea, the Hyundais and Samsungs and the Lottes. Uh, so it's an interesting combination. It's not quite like our kind of conservative populism that Trump represents, but it has a kind of similarity to it, but it's a liberal nationalism. Now that they have this large supermajority in the National Assembly, uh, President Moon is going to be able to really, I think, do what he wants for the last two years of his presidency. Yeah, and it also puts them in in uh, the, it puts the Democratic Party in great shape for the 2022 presidential elections. Um, the former premier, uh, Lee Nak Yong, who led the party uh, to this legislative victory, probably become he's old I mean, he's in his 70s, but he probably becomes the heir apparent now, or or I guess you'd put it more the front runner. Uh, I think the lesson first is that all politics is local because you're absolutely right. This was a uh, a party that uh, was not particularly or, or a government that was not particularly popular, um, was seen as, uh, as in some ways too rash with its outreach to North Korea, um, too timid in, in a lot of its, um, uh, you know, socioeconomic uh, adjustments that it was trying to make, as, as you said, in terms of uh, the Chabal and, and, and the conglomerates. Um, people wanted more action, saw that it wasn't doing what it had promised. But boom. Coronavirus hits, uh, and despite that one super spreader at the the church that you know gave them the vast majority of their cases, um, they did a great job and now uh, catapulted. I think it's 180 seats out of 300 they got. Uh, so I don't know if it's a super majority, but it's a clear majority. But more than that, it's the loss on the uh, the United Future Party, which is the the conservative party, and the fact that it really has no no clear leadership now. Certainly, no one who is of um, you know has a national stature in the same way. So. Um, but I'd also go farther than you in terms of the the nature of the party. This, you know, under Moon, this party actively scrapped, decided to torpedo relations with Japan. Um, the previous president uh, had worked. Um, it, you know, she had attempted to basically get turn the page on Korea-Japanese history by coming to an agreement on the comfort women, um, essentially talking about uh, new forms of cooperation, such as the military information uh, sharing agreement, pardon me, and the like. Uh, and when—this is Park Geun-hye—so when she was then um, impeached and removed from office uh, and Moon came in uh, through an election, um, they basically just turned their back on all of that uh, and, and you know, made it very difficult not only for Tokyo to try to continue to work with them, but also for the U.S. to continue working on a, on a tripartite basis. And at the same time, and we sort of forget this history, it was Moon that pushed— the North Korea rapprochement on Trump, not the other way around. You know, it was the South Koreans who came to the White House and said, hey, we, we can get a meeting with Kim Jong-un. And, uh, you know, and seeing really no other viable options, the White House the White House accepted it. But this has all been driven by Moon. Um, and in a way that really uh, some of unilateral actions they've taken on defensive measures, uh, on, on reducing the presence along the DMZ, you know, really has raised questions about the viability of, of the alliance. And if you're right, and I, and I think you are right, that this not only, of course, in the short term strengthens the party, but strengthens it in the long run. Uh, so that you see sort of an inverse of what you see in Japan, where Shinzo Abe has brought the conservative, the liberal Democratic Party back to a height that it hasn't had in, in decades. If if now uh, Moon has done that for the Democratic Party, it, I think it's going to be a much 
rougher ride for the United States uh, with Seoul. And if I were Beijing, Beijing, I'd be taking advantage of this. I'd be pushing as hard as I could on Moon and on his potential successors to deepen uh, relations with Beijing and deepen relations with Pyongyang. Yeah, I gotta say this is an interesting opportunity for China, as you say. Uh, luckily, China and Korea aren't getting along very well these last few years. But I think it's <clears throat> worth thinking about maybe how this sits in terms of longer-term American strategy. So, Misha, you've been out there saying that the U.S. and China are entering another Cold War. Maybe the coronavirus has just accelerated the process or uh, pulled the veil away from the eyes of a lot of Americans and Western Europeans about China's real nature. So if you want to, I don't know, if you want to think about what the United States should be doing in a longer-term perspective with regard to China, it would seem to me one of the things you want to do is <clears throat> bolster our alliances out in Asia. You know, I think the ideal thing, uh, you're the historian of the region, one of the odd things is that we never created a real NATO-like system in Eastern European, Eastern, Eastern Asia, like the way we did in Western Europe, that all our alliances, if you look at it, it's very interesting, all of our alliances are sort of bilateral. You know, we have a very strong alliance with Japan, very strong alliance with Korea, had one with the Philippines, but they're not really multilateral no. in the way the NATO and Europe are. Uh, and you know, if you want to think about what, if we really are going to head into a Cold War with China, I, I tend to agree with you, Misha, on that. Um, you know, you're the hawk, I'm the dove, I suppose, on this. But, you know, you maybe you're just, <clears throat> I think you're right on it, ultimately. Then, you know, we have to think about rebuilding all these uh, institutions to take into account that China can't be trusted to be part of the things like the WHO anymore or the UN. And you know, in, in the Cold War, what we did is we basically had parallel institutions uh, that govern trade and security and all these issues to organize our side. Remember, like, we had NATO. Then the Soviets had that funny Warsaw Pact. You know, we had, you know— uh, Not so funny meeting. staring down they the had, T-72 tanks. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's—actually—but, you know, you could say it was all a success because it allowed us to avoid war uh, through well, uh, deterring an invasion. So I wonder whether the real project for our side and our diplomats is to start— Right, overcoming all these problems that you just identified with Korean incentives, Japanese incentives, and try to get them to act more like Western Europe in 1948, 1950, you know, rebuild an alliance that's going to contain China. And as you say, I think China right now is probably pretty pleased with things. You know, the more disorder, disruption, and fighting they see amongst us and our allies in Asia, the better. Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. It, it's very hard. Uh, and the, the historical analogies are, are are not, I think, fully applicable. Um, you know, what China did differently from the Soviet Union, of course, was make you know, itself— historians always say that, by the way. You historians always right. say history's different. And we're different. always correct. And we're always correct. <laughs> yeah, you can never be wrong, because well, the year is it, different. It's beautiful, right? <laughs> uh, it's the beauty of history. Um, Cleo, the, the beautiful muse. Um, oh, Jesus. What we uh, Cleo, beautiful. Uh, Cleo. The, by the way, we gotta we gotta figure out what the Chinese version of that is. Oh, <laughs> Who's the Chinese? Sima Qian is the great Chinese historian. Um, but you know, look, what China did was brilliantly make itself the indispensable trade partner of all these nations in a way the Soviet Union never did. So that the idea of drawing clear blocks was. 
uh, was impossible. Now you had a, you had a geographic and topographical reason because of the way Asia is is uh, Asia is the way it exists. It's not you, you know the the Fulda Gap and the plains uh, the, you know the central plains of Europe where you could draw an iron curtain down. Uh, it would have always been much more difficult in terms of the geography of Asia. You also had far more countries in Asia that were uh, through this period. And in some ways, I mean, in, in different ways, but to today, uh, we're not aligned. You know, they simply don't want to choose between the two, whereas in Europe, basically everybody chose one side or the other or were forced to choose one side or the other on the on the Soviet side. Um, so, you know, Japan's economy would have been would have been destitute without China's and so would Korea's. So they're not countries that in the same way would have accepted a, uh, a linking up of what we call the hub and the spoke alliance system with the U.S. being the hub and then these spokes going out to all of the different uh, allies. We have five obviously five treaty allies and then a bunch of different partners. So I still think it's extremely difficult. And, and you hear regularly, or you've certainly heard until now regularly, uh, we, we don't want to choose. Don't force us to choose. Now, China has narrowed that space over the past decade with its uh, expansion in the South China Sea, the threatening behavior uh, and, and the like. And now I think coronavirus is going to narrow that space further. Um, but I still don't expect countries to just, you know, decide, look, we're in a Cold War with China and we're and we're um, we're signing up for the U.S. side. They still doubt our resolve. They doubted it during the Obama years. They question it during the Trump years. They doubted it during the uh, the Bush years and the like. So no matter what you say, it's not no matter what we say to them, it's not like it was with uh, the, the meeting of the minds that we had uh, that we had on NATO. So. I think it's much more difficult um, to do so. But at the same time, I think we can make a lot of inroads by not making it such a binary choice. I mean, I think the way that we do it, and in some ways we've always done this, and in other ways we haven't pushed it as much, is to talk about the values, talk about the uh, the open I hate the term, but the open architecture, meaning freedom of the sea and freedom of navigation, freedom of the air, all these different ways that uh, that benefit these countries, as opposed to saying, look, you've got to choose between China and us. What we're actually asking them to do is choose a system that's that has been beneficial to everyone, including China. And the threat is that China wants to change that system. And so instead of doing it directly, where we say, look, you gotta, you got to go with Washington or Beijing, I think what you say instead is if you've benefited from this system or, or more, if you want to benefit from the system because your economy has been uh, has been a, at a lower level of the value added chain or has been more closed then you have to support us in maintaining the openness of the system and that's where china works against itself in the south china sea and in doing things like it does against the philippines or against vietnam uh, what it did this week by unilaterally naming 80 different features in the contested waters it makes nations wary about them. Uh, so it's 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 a problem, uh, but it's one that um, I think we we can be more sophisticated in dealing with than we have. But you know, John, there are there are other problems uh, in the region that we should talk about. I think South Korea is a big issue. Uh, North Korea is always always a big issue. Um, but again, geopolitics doesn't stop with coronavirus. And um, we have to start looking again at Hong Kong. We got some problems in Hong Kong. Yes, you know, you saw that the government there, the Hong Kong government, arrested a number of leading dem democracy activists, yeah. 
including publishers, professors. See, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like. I don't like this arresting of professors business. And you go don't care. Everybody else can go, but once they know, get to yeah. professors, draw the line. Yeah, arrest newspaper publishers. Everybody hates them anyway. But they arrested a lot of democracy. A lot of not just any old democracy activists, but the highest profile, most well-known leaders of right. some of the different protests have been going on. Um, they've been uh, charged uh, under um, Hong Kong law for their protests against the extradition bill. You remember the extradition bill, which was eventually withdrawn, although no, it's not clear whether it's permanently withdrawn, but right. eventually right. withdrawn, which would have allowed uh, people living in Hong Kong to be extradited for trial in China for violations of Chinese law. In fact, if the democracy activists hadn't succeeded, they probably would have been extradited to China right now under this bill. And so, yes, we. so maybe, uh, maybe I'd put it, to you, Misha, we are uh, talking about, uh, uh, you know, sort of China assuming that's unified, assuming that its growth of power is going to continue unabated, that it is going to be this long-term strategic rival for us. But at the same time, uh, we see weaknesses, I think, in its treatment of Hong Kong and its heavy-handedness, um, its inability to solve the Hong Kong issue, I think, I, uh, to me, again, violating the Oslin rule, no coronavirus talk. But you know, <laughs> uh, I'm from the outside, I think the worse China acts on Hong Kong, it just reinforces what happened with the coronavirus. This is a country that's not keeping its promises, you know, made this promise to Great Britain when it received Hong Kong back that it would respect its political independence or its one country, two systems a slogan for 50 years. Uh, it's not, not been quite 50 years. I think 50 years is 20, 30 something. Um, it's a similar with the coronavirus. It's a country that uh, China is a country that's just not going to obey or play by any international rules. And it's just going to act as it sees fit and uh, throw all kinds of costs on everybody else. And who cares? Yeah, it's been 23 years, right, since 1997, so not quite 50. Um, but I think China's, you know, following the Rahm Emanuel principle, which is never let a crisis go to waste, which is the world is distracted. Um, obviously, these these orders to the Hong Kong government had to have come from Beijing. So, you know, so they arrested Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai was just at Hoover. He, he gave an incredibly beautiful and impassioned speech about democracy and how the Hong Kongers look at the United States. I mean, literally, he had people with tears in their eyes when he he spoke to uh, to uh, our gathering. Uh, he was arrested, released on bail. Martin Lee, one of the, the veteran lawmakers, was arrested and released on bail. You also saw that they charged, I think, at least one, maybe two, teenagers with murder. Uh, during the protests for uh, hitting some guy in the head with a brick or something, but but you never saw uh, any serious charges brought against the the Tong thugs who beat up uh, the the, uh, the, the the pro democracy protesters. So um, clearly, this was Beijing taking advantage of the crisis to, I think, send another warning shot across the bow of Hong Kong. And they did it at, let's be honest, a perfect time. How many people here even know it happened? I mean, very few, because we're all focused on our, our daily COVID numbers. Um, and this, this made clear to the Hong Kongers that uh, don't think that when this crisis is over, uh, meaning the COVID crisis, don't think that we've forgotten about you. We haven't. And don't think that you're going to be able to go back on the streets in the same way. Um, I think the other thing, John, is that this really 
it's it's very sad, but I think in in many ways it just ends the fiction of any real distinction between the Hong Kong government and the mainland now. Uh, you know, this is it's becoming increasingly. Uh, by far increasingly clear that um, this the, the idea of one country, two systems, which we all want to pay lip service to, is, has really basically disappeared. I mean, if you think going forward, the question is, would, would Beijing and then the, the Hong Kong government and Carrie Lam, the, the chief executive, think that, well, look, now's a great time to reintroduce the, uh, the the extradition bill because you're on lockdown. People can't get out on the streets. And how many you're going to get a million people on the streets with with uh, the coronavirus? I doubt it. So if they were real gamblers, which they're not because they've been fairly careful, but if they were real gamblers, now would be the time to say, hey, let's shove this thing through. And the next time we arrest people, absolutely, as you pointed out, John, we can we can extradite them to the mainland. This may be a a turning point. Um, for Hong Kong. And we really have to see what happens with um, the leadership of the protests, or, or not even just the leadership, you know, really the, just the, 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 the spirit of the protests. If when uh, the corona crisis is over, uh, people actually want to come back out on the streets, or has this just sort of extinguished it? Now, you know, we said that after 2014 and said, look, they lost, the umbrella revolution didn't make a dent, and then we saw what happened last year. So I wouldn't count the Hong Kongers out, but precisely because of that, I think Beijing is laying down the marker that we will have the Hong Kong government institute mass arrests. Don't think that we, we have forgotten about you. Well, and also, and we're seeing this here in the United States, is you, during the pandemic response, the power of the government is going to increase. And that's right. true in Hong Kong too. And so you could see Beijing applying a carrots and sticks approach. The stick approach is arresting democracy activists, uh, sort of showing that you're gonna get tough. Uh, the carrot side might be, you know, we're going to uh, pour more resources to fight the pandemic off. Hong Kong is an extremely dense, crowded city, but it hasn't experienced anything like what we've seen in New York City, for example. Right. I, Hong Kong, pro, I, I haven't read any you know, close scholarly studies of the public health policies. Uh, you know, most of the public health uh, attention has been on South Korea and Singapore, but it looks like, it's, from what I understand, Hong Kong has employed similar policies and hasn't had the kind of serious, terrible outbreak break you had in Wuhan or in Italy or in New York City. And so well, maybe SARS. I mean, yeah, yeah that's true. Went. I mean, when I, I think, did we talk about this last time? Anyway, I mean, when I went, uh, I think we did talk about this when I went, uh, well, ten years ago now, doing research for the last book. Um, uh, they were every every time someone sneezed, they wiped everything down. You know, then they were still going around and wiping elevator buttons. So they really learned from SARS, and Taiwan learned from SARS. Everybody learned from SARS except us because it didn't come to us, and so we thought we were going to be uh, we we thought we'd be immune. Um, we I think we really had a SARS mentality, and that won't happen again. I agree, I agree. My only point was that uh, it's just like the phenomenon you saw in. South Korea, you know, the effective response right. to the flu right. is just going to bolster popular support for the government in power, <clears throat> even though they might use uh, methods which intrude on individual privacy in a way 
might be hard to imagine being used here. Although I think that's one, and that's sort of one thing I wanted to just close with was to <clears throat> ask what you think of claims or arguments that the kinds of successful policies that were used uh, in Asia, in South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, couldn't work here because of cultural differences. Or you often hear this kind of argument made about Asia, that, you know, Asian culture and American culture are so different. There are certain government, certain problems that we have that they don't have, uh, but also uh, certain kinds of things governments can do there that governments here can't do. Uh, I just don't know how true those are. So, for example, with the coronavirus, you see uh, the government quarantining people it knows are uh, or thinks are uh, likely to have the coronavirus in their homes or even taking them out of their homes and quarantining them in dorms, you know, government-controlled dorms, right. and then tracking them via their cell phones to make sure they don't violate those quarantine orders, and then backtracing their movements with their cell phones to see everybody they came, came into contact with since they got the virus, and then to go go get in touch with them. And people here say, oh, the United States, we could never do that. People would never stand for that because culturally we are different. Do you think that we really are culturally so different that this sort of Asian exceptionalism arguments, you often hear these made by people in Asia too. It's not just Americans who make these claims. Do you really think that's true? I think there are, you know, you have to be obviously very careful about about cultural essentialism or or stereotyping. I think there are certain things that are true. Number one, um, Asia overall has a much greater population density in its cities, except uh, much greater population density in cities than we do, except for a place like New York. Right. I mean, we have the, the, the just the nature, the, the geography of the country means we can sprawl much more. They don't have suburbs in many places in the way that we do. You either have countryside or you have city side, which is why people sort of get confused that there are cities of 30 million people in the deep interior of China where you'd expect nothing but farms. So you've got those types of concentrations you have it in Korea, you have it in Japan, Taiwan, obviously Hong Kong itself and everywhere. And so they are much more used to more dramatic measures to control uh, communicable diseases uh, in general, SARS being a great example. But when I lived in Japan, as soon as flu season came around, people started wearing masks. Now, it was sick people wore masks, so they wouldn't spread it. Um, but also, sometimes healthy people would wear masks. And now everybody's going to wear masks. And I think we're going to change in certain ways. So there are certain things I think that that Asians are are, are just used to because of uh, certain geographic and, and demographic social uh, aspects that allow governments to act uh, more quickly, uh, perhaps, or, or more intrusively than you can here. So that raises questions about our differences. I mean, on the one hand, you had, you know, Cuomo, uh, the, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, lambasting New Yorkers for not paying attention to the social distancing rule. And they got know, how many millions of calls about people violating the social distancing rule in the parks and on the, you know, and on the, the, the seaside and, and all these other places. Um, so the New Yorkers just sort of saying, I ah, forget about it. Then on the other hand, you had the, the places that are, are definitely more consciously don't tread on me, like Texas having act and, and New Hampshire having actual demonstrations against the lockdown. So Americans, we do it, I think, a little bit differently depending on, on 
uh, cultural regional differences here, let alone that, you know, when you get out where I am in the suburbs, you know, you've, you've got more space, you're not chock-a-block on top of each other in the same way. And so you're, you're, you don't feel that a lockdown is nearly as onerous because I've got a big fenced in backyard and we can go spend time out there or walk, you know, walk around the streets. And it's, it's not like being down in Soho. Um, so the cultural differences, I think, I think are real and that makes it harder for the U.S. to say, well, what we, what we are going to do is now start contact tracing through phones and we're going to set up these sort of hot, hot spot quarantines. But again, you know, it's the nature of the disease. And we think we talked about this last time. If this were a disease that had a 30, 40, 50 percent mortality rate, I think in a heartbeat, people would say, do what you need to do. We don't care because I don't want to come anywhere near someone who's who's likely going to kill me or my family. Right now, there's so much ambiguity. You know, what is the death rate and is it really old people and how many people just have minor conditions that we're much more um, we're much more willing to 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 go along with being, you know, being somewhat um, skeptical. Um, but wait, John, I thought we weren't even going to talk about coronavirus. What happened? We just spent five, <laughs> ten minutes talking about the most depressing thing. Um, I think the bottom line in Asia is that the story's not over. And, and I'll end my part by just saying, unfortunately, look at Singapore, which had a phenomenal success rate in initially uh, controlling the virus and now has had an explosion due to the migrant workers. And they are now trying to keep them um, uh, isolated in the laboratories. Uh, I mean, not in the laboratories, I'm sorry, in their dormitories. But you can still look at Taiwan, and Taiwan remains the gold standard around the world for controlling this. More intrusive, contact tracing, using the phones, um, and yet they've had nothing like the disruption that we've had. So um, the story's not yet over in Asia, um, uh, and here, uh, unfortunately, I think we're still, quite frankly, uh, at the beginning of this rather than near the end of it. Yeah, but one thing I, I I hope we put to bed are sometimes people in the West, in the United States, who have a admira strange admiration for Chinese authoritarian government. And sometimes you saw this during the pandemic. Oh, in China, they could shut down Wuhan. They could shut down the province in the name of science. And he says, this is a species of these people who would say, oh, isn't it great you can build a high-speed line in China because you can just right, take all the property between Beijing and Shanghai and build a— you know, train there that would take decades to build in the United States, take a few years. But right, I think you see Taiwan, South Korea, these are democracies. These are, you know, free market economy, maybe some some ways free more free market than we are now. Mm -hmm. And they have an effective response. It doesn't it's a it's a great lesson that you don't need to have authoritarian government in order to effectively respond to this kind of public health the emergency comes along once a century. Well, Misha, it's been great. It's been great. I just wanted to show you I'm not willing to listen to any of your rules. I'm I, you made that good, eminently I'm not, I am not a good Asian stereotype because I just will not follow <laughs> rules and orders. Yeah, so well, despite your best efforts to the to depression talk about the of coronavirus, everyone. we had to talk about the coronavirus. To everyone's depression, you 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 flouted the rules. Nice going, John. <laughs> so now we all need a, a, a break. So, Misha, uh, thanks a lot. And on behalf of the both of us, I'd like to thanks, give my thanks to all of you for listening to yet another episode of the Pacific Century. And until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye.
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.